So whenever you're ready, we can go. Are you ready? Yeah. What is up? We are going live date on Kubernetes community live stream number 104. We are with a member, not of the Fantastic Four, but of the Fantastic Five, or I don't know what superhero crew he's in. He's a Deadpool fan. Deadpool may be making an appearance, as well as other superheroes in this particular live stream. But before we get started, we're getting close to the holiday season. Holiday season is a good time to read a good book and avoid your family, all right? Our families are wonderful, but sometimes we can get saturated. So if you need to do that, I highly recommend checking out the Data on Kubernetes Community 2021 Research Report. You'll find lots of good stuff there. Um, as a way to educate your families on what data on Kubernetes is, the impact it's having, and why the 500 organizations we interviewed say that they believe there's a lot of future in it. Um, so that's one piece of literature I'm going to share with you today. Another piece of literature that we're going to be sharing is a very fascinating blog post that was written not too long ago by today's speaker. His name is Nick. I'm going to be very brave and try to say your last name correctly with my horrendous uh, American uh, I'm curious. Go for it. Vermonde. Yeah, yeah, with Vermandi, yeah, but oh, in okay, English, so I like, just said, you can say Vermandi. Vermandi. <laughs> Vermandi. You know, it's easier for English-speaking people to pronounce it this way. Yeah, Vermandi. Well, anyway, Nick, it's very nice to have you with us. You're rocking out developer advocacy at Ondat, but apart from that, you've got purple hair, kind of got a mohawk, you've got tattoos. We did a Twitter Spaces last week, which is a lot of fun. For the folks who didn't attend that, can you just give us a brief summary of who you are and what makes you so unique? Oh, I don't know if I'm unique, but... Oh, you are. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Nick. I've been working with on that for, what, the past two two months, something. Um, and then before that, I worked for six years at Cisco. So also focusing a lot of um, on the, the CNI. So not really the data part, but mo most, mostly the, the networking part. Uh, so working in engineering... Um, uh, engineering, engineering organization as part of the technical marketing marketing team. Mm -hmm. So doing a lot of stuff around education, uh, product management, uh, also talking a lot of, you know, conferences, things like that. And uh, yeah, Kubernetes probably for the last five years. And before that, I was doing a lot of virtualization. I'm a double VMware VCDX as well in my, for my, you know, past life. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I've been doing system Linux for the past 15 years, something. Like wow. So, a lot of it, a lot yeah. of experience. Yeah, a lot of experience. And it's nice that you've you've seen all that, but here you are now very much focused on on this aspect of running data on Kubernetes. And just for folks that you're definitely going to want to read this, I'm just going to link it now. Um, Nick had a blog post that came out um, not that long ago, about 10 days ago, um, about how stateful apps in Kubernetes are a big deal. Um, yeah. So that's and I another reading. one. Yesterday, I released a new one, uh, which is called, I can't remember the name, uh, but it's basically the same kind of, um, thing I'm going to be talking about today is it's about shifting left and doing some sort of on-demand with shift left with data and bringing this whole, you know, cloud native workloads into an, the real like on-demand for developers. Right. Okay. Well, let's start shifting left. We can get the blog yeah. post later and link that in. But yeah, let's, let's shift left together. Let's do it. Okay. So let me share my screen right now. Good. As usual, folks, while next presenting, if you have any questions, comments, doubts, concerns, et cetera, please leave them in the YouTube chat and we will happy to get to, to them accordingly. Um, that being said, Nick, it's all yours. Okay, thank you. So again, I'm very glad and super excited to be there, uh, especially with you, Bart, because I know we share a lot of interests. So hopefully yes. it's gonna be fun. Um, <clears throat> so the talk today is gonna be about, you know, how to enable self-service infrastructure by shifting left your data with Kubernetes. Uh, a long title with a lot of different words, <laughs> right? Uh, we're going to be talking about what can be considered as self-service in the cloud and how cloud native relates to cloud. It's more like a blue pill, red pill kind of thing. We're going to try to analyze that. Um, then we're going to see how to do it with Kubernetes, how to provide and to help developers. So this is probably what I'll be trying to focus on today is on-demand on services for developers, but it can also be extended to, uh, to anyone who wants to consume some sort of application and deploy application in Kubernetes. So maybe application owner, uh, can be a platform admins, can be you know, other type of personas. But today I want to focus on uh, the developer because I want to show you some code and you know the Marvel app as well. How cool is that? Right? Oh yeah, there will be a Marvel <laughs> app, yes. <laughs> And then how to, uh, so I, I will also uh, install, I have a demo for you. So probably I'm gonna to try to spend 
probably have the time on the demo uh, because it's going to be a full CI/CD pipeline on how to bring you know persistent uh, stateful application uh, data into the picture from start to finish uh, in terms of uh, the development lifecycle, like from the laptop to uh, public cloud in your production Kubernetes cluster. Uh, so there's a lot of different tools to uh, to cover. Um, so hopefully this is going to be fun. And I'm going to ask probably people some question about, you know, I've done things in a certain way. I've used specific tools. I've tried to stay within the Kubernetes, you know, environment. So Kubernetes tools. Uh, but if at any point in time, people, you know, can say, okay, I'm doing it this way, or we do it this way in my company because of X, Y, Z. I'm also quite curious to, to, uh, to hear about that. Okay, so let's get started. I think I don't really need to introduce myself anymore. Uh, so again, I'm working for on that. I'm a principal developer advocate. You can um, contact me or follow me on, on Twitter there. There's my, my handle. Uh, then let's get started. So the first question is how cloud native is related to cloud. Is it the same thing or maybe not? Right. So in the, the, the context of this talk, I'm going to be focusing on cloud native as the you know cncf let's say landscape or definition of it like mostly like running kubernetes workloads as opposed to the cloud definition um, i mean if you look at the nist definition of cloud which was probably the most comprehensive way of defining cloud uh, they say it's essentially um, you know it's a model to enable access to um, a shared configurable pool of computing resources uh, that can be rapidly provisioned or released with minimum uh, management effort or manual action. Right? That's essentially the definition of cloud, right? But the way most people consume cloud today is by using public cloud. And that fits well also with Kubernetes because you can find you know, many different distribution of Kubernetes in, in the public cloud. You have EKS, AKS, right? all these kind of, um, kind of services. But so those things, the workloads, or all the services you can ask on demand in the, set, the, the, the cloud service providers, what they are going to tell you is that, yeah, you know, it's the economy of scale. Uh, we can go super fast to deploy our workloads. You can consume any service is going to be provisioned in two minutes. I mean, that's perfect. But when we start talking about deploying, you know, complex application or, you know, um, resources that have a lot of dependencies between each other, um, usually what cloud providers don't tell you is that you have to put a lot of glue, right, to make those services work. Um, and also those cloud uh, service provider, they all have their own way of doing things. Uh, especially if you want to put some glue together, uh, it will be pretty much specific to one particular cloud. There's no real way of uh, standardizing things, right? So as you need more glue between the different elements, what you tend to lose is the on-demand aspect of it, right? The on-demand or self-service aspect to it, because at some point you will you will have blockers, right? You will have blockers because, oh, this, I didn't create my script to do it. So it has to be manual. It has to go through, um, you know, another, maybe at some point you will, you, you're going to come up with a, you know, a script or some automation, but it takes time to get there, right? So essentially what I'm trying to say is compared, I mean, look at this picture. This is kind of reflecting this. You have, you know, the magic world of the Care Bears uh, on the top, but you know the the hidden part of the iceberg, which is really big, is probably the amount of time that you're going to spend trying to put your own IP to make the on-demand part happen in the cloud, right? And this may happen for various reasons, because once you are in a single, I mean, probably you're going to start with one cloud, or today your company is sitting with a, a single public cloud, but chances chances are that's really fast, you're going to consume resources and deploy services in more than one cloud. So everything I've mentioned around, you know, putting the glue using cloud-specific tools to build your on-demand services, uh, you will just need to rinse and repeat again with other clouds. So imagine that 
you have to again deploy new skill sets, and you have um, you know you have to face your learning curve with the new cloud. So again, it's going to delay whatever you want to release on that cloud. If that's a, if that's an application, if that's a particular you know CRM software, whatever something that you have the IP for, um, yeah, you're just going to deduplicate all the effort, right? But there are very very good reason why companies are doing it. Can be things like ELA, maybe. I don't know if you're a Microsoft customer and you use a lot of Office 365, then Microsoft can propose you like some you know, Azure credits. So why not, right? You're going to be starting to use this cloud. Uh, if you're using big you know, Oracle databases, uh, maybe Oracle Cloud would be the right fit because they would give you a discount. Uh, also, with a lot of mergers and acquisition, maybe you know, the, the company you're going to acquire may be sitting in another cloud. So you have to learn all those things. And also high availability, although this one is not necessarily, I would say, a good reason to use multiple cloud, because as long as your workloads are located in different AZ or different region, you tend to be safer. Right? But still, if you don't trust a particular cloud, then you may, you may want to you know, implement your services into more than one cloud for a high availability. So a couple of challenges, again, they all have different APIs. They will uh, all use different SDK, different libraries. And in terms of DevOps and building the automation uh, around what you want to, to, uh, to deploy or develop, then you will also find different proprietary services and tools, the equivalent of Git, the equivalent of you know, Ansible or all those type of things like declarative model in every cloud will be different, different syntax uh, and different trainings in the end. So you have to, I mean, your company has to invest into people and you personally have to invest uh, into training and, and develop your skills, which is not a bad thing, uh, but depending the amount of work you have to put and the amount of time you have available, of course. And so you end up with a plate of spaghetti. So hopefully I don't make anyone uh, hungry yet, but this is what I was trying to, to show here. You end up with a sort of a plate of, of spaghetti of uh, different libraries, APIs, DK, and all of that. Uh, which brings me to the point I'm trying to make, <laughs> right? We need some sort of, standardization. And this is where I can make the relation with cloud native, right? And when I say cloud native, it's, it's Kubernetes. So Kubernetes is bringing this kind of, you know, standardization or cloud framework uh, you can use typically in any cloud, right? You talk to Kubernetes in uh, GCP, you can talk Kubernetes in AWS, you can deploy your Kubernetes cluster anywhere, essentially. And uh, it's not something new. Um, if you look at what HashiCorp did in the past, they brought Terraform as the framework or others as the, the standard way of deploying and managing the life cycle of resources uh, in the, you know, various environments. can be in public cloud, all the cloud providers, you will have you know, a Terraform provider for that, or even on-prem like vSphere environments, all that, they, they, can, they can support this as well. And you also have more, let's say, code-friendly solutions like Polumi, because I don't know if anyone has ever tried to, to do like a more advanced logic into Terraform. Uh, just like creating a loop can be quite challenging in Terraform. You have to do a lot of transformation, etc. So it can be uh, it can be a pain in the neck, to be honest. But still, uh, the purpose is to standardize the creation and the definition of resources. But it doesn't solve everything. It's not like Terraform is not the solution of uh, you know, all the pains you have when you migrate to cloud. So one of them is that um, it's very difficult for Terraform uh, to provide day two operations and to kind of reconcile the modification you're doing in production back into your uh, your configuration. So typically in Terraform, you have your declarative model, uh, which is HCL or JSON, uh, and then you deploy your different resources into your environment. So they they can still do dry. So dry stands for don't repeat yourself. It's a kind of a you know paradigm you want to adopt when using Terraform. Um, so you always have you know the different environment like uh, dev, test, staging, production, and you will um, you will create different. Uh, different manifest or different scripts uh, for Terraform to uh, to use, so you can still deploy different configuration and different parameters depending on what kind of environment um, you, you want to deploy into. But the challenge is, 
if at some point you don't use Terraform to modify your environment because you, you need to do it in, in an imperative way, there's no way or it can, it's, it's tricky, very tricky to apply the changes in the, the opposite direction. So from your running environment into your Terraform configuration, right? Um, so yes, the expectation is to perform data operation on demand too. That's, that would be our ultimate goal with at least with Kubernetes. This is what we are going to try to achieve. And there's a way to do it in Kubernetes. And I'm going to talk about this um, you know, a bit later, which is GitOps, right? GitOps allows you to take configuration, inject it and ingest it into and apply it into Kubernetes. But then if you do any modification in, into Kubernetes, you can also revert uh, the, the, the direction and say, okay, I've done this configuration, now update my repository with that particular configuration, right? So it's going one step further, also in the sense that, you know, Terraform is not meant to be a runtime for application. So Kubernetes is. So what, where I'm, what I'm trying to say is don't solely rely on Terraform to do everything, uh, but probably Kubernetes, I may be a bit, um, you know, uh, I would say biased or opinionated on that, but I believe Kubernetes to begin with is the ideal platform to automate anything, not only for stuff you're going to be running in Kubernetes, but also, you know, other environments. So for example, if you want to automate AWS workloads or AWS services or anything that's run, you know, in another cloud that is not related to Kubernetes at all. And actually there are companies who are already doing this today. For example, if you take a look at uh, the Crossplane project, and I think the company is abound behind it, uh, they propose to do that, essentially using Terraform as a uh, Terraform, using Kubernetes, sorry, as a, as an automation engine for that, not only for running application, but also to run the automation to uh, deploy you know, all your services on demand for things that are external to the cluster, essentially. Hope that makes sense. So I don't know if there are any questions on that before I move to more of the uh, using Kubernetes as a common framework. When you mentioned the aspect of automation, I would like to know in your particular case, what are things that you would like to see automated on Kubernetes that haven't necessarily been automated yet? Huh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so inside Kubernetes, I think, you know, we are pretty much covered in terms of probably like the application. We, we, we have, well, I mean, one could argue we have build packs today to build application from, uh, you know, from the, from the ground up, right? So I would say, but this part is still in the early days. So automating, automating like building application and the whole deployment uh, and management of the application uh, I think it's an area that needs a bit more work. Uh, although, and, and <laughs> back to your question, I'm going to show you how to create a CI/CD pipeline natively in Kubernetes using container. So um, it's based on Tekton. And I think te Tekton is fantastic because it's kind of, with Tekton, you can automate anything mm -hmm. using Kubernetes. Yeah. Right? So you can automate anything in Kubernetes, but also other things. But for me, it's still a bit, not immature, but kind of super complicated uh, because it's super flexible, but you have to configure all the moving parts. Yeah. So all the, the parameters, the values, all the, you know, the different actions you, you need to do. It's very, very granular, mm -hmm. uh, but also very, very flexible. So which comes at a price, right? So um, my point also, another point is really to, what I'd like to see is bring, I mean, is exactly what I was saying before is automating things that are not inside Kubernetes and maybe even make people feel that, okay, not, you, you're not even aware that it's running on Kubernetes. So, okay, you need to deploy some automation. In the past, we were using like an Ansible script or Terraform script today. Oh, by the way, you know, you can do that. Just use this. And in the backend is gonna be talking to Kubernetes. Just use YAML like operator, right? The same principle as for our databases, but just use an operator and YAML to deploy anything on demand. I think it's probably, you know, YAML is not super popular for developers, but the reality is when it comes to do like syntax check or just building templates and customization, it's quite easy, right? I mean, another option would be JSON as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but with those two kind of declarative tools, we can do pretty much anything on demand as long as you have the right automation engine. In our case, I think Kubernetes can pretty much do it all. Right? 
Very, very good. Cool. Let's keep going. Okay, so uh, before, so now I'm going to be focusing on how to do, you know, end-to-end, -end, um, bring these on-demand resources and on-demand, uh, you know, kind of workflow within Kubernetes for pretty much everything, including when you have persistent data and stateful, you know, application that are involved. And this is why I put this title together, right? We want to also integrate this data aspect into, into this. But first we need to do a couple of assumptions uh, or the def simply define what on-demand provisioning means. So again, putting myself into the shoes of a developer. So in production, like developers, they don't directly connect to the cluster and typically developer should not get credential of <laughs> your production cluster. Uh, it's pretty bad, it's pretty bad practice. So, but still um, when the moment is has come to, de to deploy into production, um, you may want, you still want to, to have on-demand capabilities, except that it's not gonna be done manually by the developer, but let's say when an application owner or a special team needs to deploy an application, it should be as simple as just clicking on a button and suddenly everything is magic, right? So including the data bits, uh, so the stateful sets, including you know, the, the stateless services, um, the provisioning of data, if you need some replication on the data uh, by using a solution, I mean, like on that, or I mean, there's other solution as well, but to give you this extra, um, you know, uh, enterprise ready features for your data, because you need some sort of uh, advanced features such as replication, security, uh, with encryption, all of that. So you have you want to make sure whatever tool you're using that you can um, you can tick this box because otherwise you won't be able to provide the same thing as the public cloud because when you put workload into the public cloud, then that's by default you can leverage high uh, you know high availability there. So be sure to 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 take care of that right. Um, Otherwise, in staging or dev, dev cycle, you can say, okay, the, the developer can make use of kubectl. Uh, that's eventually an option because typically the, the dev environment has its own dedicated cluster. If you're mixing dev and prod on the same cluster and just create namespaces, uh, you're gonna quickly run into issues. So all, my advice is always have a dev, even a staging you know, different cluster. Uh, I like personally, and that my personal preference, also depending maybe on the size of, of the company, uh, but to have, um, you know, the, let's say the, the, uh, the tenant should be the cluster. That's the, the, the granularity I like to have. Of course, you can do it with namespaces, but, you know, problems may arise because not all objects are namespaced, especially CRDs and things like that. So you may have, uh, you may have conflict here and there, right? So it's more difficult to manage. Um, and another definition or assumption is the developers, they don't want to build. Uh, I mean, they don't, they, they, maybe they, they want, but they shouldn't. They shouldn't build application or infrastructure manifest on their own. So typically what you will find is the DevOps team or the platform engineers are gonna provide some sort of uh, boilerplates or templates. And we're gonna see how, how to do it later with customize and things like that. And um, the dev, basically his responsibility is just to change number, like, uh, you know, how many, what's the size of the storage unit? What type of storage? Is it replicated, not replicated? Or, you know, how many replicas do you need for your databases? This kind of things. You don't want to let the developer just build the whole thing, just maybe change a couple of things because this is what on-demand is. On-demand will be essentially the query of the developers. I want X amount of, you know, why, uh, or I need X number of something. Right? And that's basically it. You don't want to go past that level, right? Because anyway, is YAML uh, even coding, right? I guess it's also a matter of preference. Um, and as I was saying, there's also an important part, which is the difference between stateless and um, stateful application. If you want to include them into your, uh, your different pipeline, because of course, how we're gonna, manage to deploy on-demand resources and manage you know, the life cycle of that is by using CI-CD pipelines that we are gonna be running inside Kubernetes. So which means that we are gonna be using Kubernetes objects and in the case of application that need you know, data, 
So you will have your front end that may be running as a stateless application on the left here. So you see you have a service, you have pods, and typically you don't, you don't map any storage to it for the simple reason that if you want to map a persistent, so hopefully everyone is familiar with PVC persistent volume. I'm assuming this because we are on the okay, right? So, more, more, more than twice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that should be, everyone should be familiar with that. But uh, what I'm trying to say is when you attach a, a PVC to a, a deployment manifest, all the pods within that deployment will share the same PVC. So obviously there has to be a shared file system, a shared, um, you know, shared storage. So typically NFS, if you try to map something that is local to your node, so guess what? So the first part, I mean, the part that is local on the node has access to it. Uh, if more than one pods are running on that node, only the first one, of course, will, will claim it and have access to it. And of course, all other pods that are running on other nodes, they won't have access to it. So I, you know, I met a lot, you know, different people who were trying to use uh, PVC by, you know, doing like local storage, and suddenly, you know, things don't work. Obviously, they don't work because you're using a deployment and not a stateful set. And the easiest way to use uh, to provision storage in a declarative way, and that will facilitate the on-demand approach. Uh, for, for data. So imagine here the persistent volume is backing a database like MongoDB, for example, right? So when you declare, um, you create the, the configuration of your stateful set, you're going to have uh, what we call um, a volume claim template, right? And in, in your volume claim template, uh, you're going to reference a storage class, right? So you just have to do this. And as long as the storage class is, pro I mean, is provided by a, you know, is attached to a CSI that can, and the storage class can dynamically provision the PVC and the backing persistent volume, you're safe. You don't have to touch anything else. So just using a volume claim template, specifying, you know, the storage class that you want, the space, the disk space that you want, and that's it. That's the easiest way uh, to, to create this into, into a stateful set. And in turn, it's gonna facilitate how um, you can parameter this into a CI/CD pipeline. Very simple, you want to keep it simple. And yeah, so that's basically the difference. Uh, and why would you do this? Again, I'm just trying to reinforce if we are still people who doubt that DOK makes sense. So just a quick reminder. So this is Gartner, not me, by 2023. So cloud DB, we account for 50% of all the DBs. And when we say cloud DBs, again, you have to make the relationship between, okay, we have DB as a service, like RDS, all those kind of things, uh, but we also you can also do DB as a service inside Kubernetes. And why you would want to do one versus another, I mean, if you ask me, DB as a service in uh, cloud providers is super expensive, right? So if you have the money for it and you don't have if you don't have the possibility to invest into internal skills, because of course, if you want to do it in Kubernetes, you need the skills to do so, right? But if you do it in Kubernetes, if you run your, if you implement your own version of database as a service in Kubernetes, the cost will, I mean, dramatically be reduced. Um, I don't know, maybe 50%, even more than that, right? But of course you need to invest more in, in people. Uh, but there are a couple of benefits, more control, reduce the cost, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, both are part of the cloud, let's say uh, the cloud landscape. DB as a service, running DB into Kubernetes, the way I interpret this data there, 50% is both, like right? it's for, I mean, everything included. So Kubernetes in, I mean, hopefully, um, we're gonna see more and more people adopting this kind of DB as a service inside Kubernetes. I think there's so many benefits. Uh, and again, here I've put some data from um, Datadog. Uh, that's typically, I mean, that's the um, um, container images that are used by enterprises. So you can see that among those two, four, six, eight, 10, what, like 16 or 14, there's half, so 16, half of those are um, our databases or stateful application. So effectively, what I'm trying to say is that this is a thing, right? But hopefully everyone already knew that, but just in case. <laughs> so now I'm going to give you a, a, couple, a couple, of, you know, couple of tips to make 
and just before going into the demo to make uh, these on-demand resources possible into Kubernetes and all those elements should be part of your pipeline. So of course, stay declarative as much as possible. The first tip, if you want to deploy your database, use an operator, of course, why? Because again, you're gonna configure the database as YAML, not because it's fancy, just because it's YAML, right? So YAML means that you can use templatization, you can use any, any tool to, to, to customize that. Um, and also you, uh, what it allows you to do is not only to manage the configuration of the underlying infrastructure, so the stateful sets, but also the configuration of the database itself. You know, as you, you, you scale your database, as you scale your stateful set, the database will scale as well in terms of the, the database itself, the number of replica, uh, you know, whatever is primary and secondary. The operator helps you helps you achieve this, right? So it's really, really key to, to, to that. Uh, second tip is if you want to make your application um, available on demand, you have to make it Kubernetes native. What I mean by that is typically when you um, you start developing an application. A lot of people are using you know, configuration scripts as part of the code, as part of the application. You shouldn't do that in Kubernetes if you want to maintain this on demand and have the ability to use the, 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 the Kubernetes paradigm to change those values by using, again, YAML, templatization, customize, and CI/CD pipelines. So you want to decouple your code from um, the configuration and there's different way to do this in Kubernetes. So we have a lot of different first-class citizen and primitive. We have environment variable inside Kubernetes. We have uh, volumes you can mount and using the downward API. So the downward API, um, if people are not familiar with that, it's a very simple uh, concept that allows you, uh, as depicted there, right? So uh, as part of your manifest, um, your application manifest, you get a reference other objects that are living within the Kubernetes APIs, right? So maybe you want to, 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 to inject some labels, uh, existing labels in, uh, and Kubernetes labels into your application to have more context. So essentially it's making your application aware of some values that are set in the cluster. And of course there is another way to do it, uh, which is the one I've represented in blue slash green there, uh, which is from your application, uh, query the AP, the Kubernetes API using your 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 basic service account, right? Every every pod mounts a secret that gives you access to the Kubernetes API to uh, to perform queries. But I would say if you can avoid it, um, avoid it. It's not really you know if you want to to use like simple things that are available by default using the download API then just use the downward API. I mean, you can uh, look into the documentation, downward API won't, won't cover all objects, but if you can do it with the downward API, this is the real pattern. Um, the, the, you know, just using the, the pod and the service account to, to query the Kubernetes API, it's also another pattern, but sometimes can be an, an anti-pattern, right? If you can do it with the downward API. So just be careful of that. Um, I'm going to continue the rest of the tips, but this time uh, I've been covering, you know, um, what is specific to Kubernetes uh, in terms of objects and 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 constraints and paradigms. Now I'm going to go into how to. I mean, that was more like, you know, why to do it in Kubernetes and a couple of you know objects there. But now I'm going to focus into some um, paradigms that you will be using to deploy all of that, to realize all those operations, uh, this from uh, you know, start to end, no manual action, when you want to deploy your application, including the configuration, including the infrastructure bits, which is the storage layer, the network layer, uh, using those paradigms. So two main paradigms, one is shift left, and the other one is GitOps. Uh, so the first, I'm gonna start talking um, about the, uh, the shift left first. So shift left. I don't know if people are super familiar with that. Uh, originally, it's a uh, it is a um, concept that that is coming from um, the software engineering side of the house, where the idea is to bring your um, testing as uh, close as possible 
as the original you know, development cycle. So you want to test your application and it can be things like integration tests, smoke tests, a lot earlier in the development process. So why you want to do this is uh, there are studies that show that the, I mean, the later you start you know, um, noticing bug and fixing bug, the most expensive uh, to fix those bugs it is, right? So you want to be able to detect bugs very early in the development cycle. And for this, you also need some infrastructure component because if you need, I don't know, um, you know, some storage, if you want to test your application uh, in situation of production, then you need also to bring the production, I mean, the, the environment that is used in production. You want maybe a mirror of that, right? So for that, for this, you need the infrastructure component where your application is running. So this is why the shift left paradigms is not only about the development practice, it's also about bringing the infrastructure component early in the cycle. So what that means in terms of Kubernetes, it means that your manifest needs to include uh, you know, proper configuration of the resources that you need. Can be things like network policies, uh, can be things like, uh, you know, we are talking about storage. Again, if you're using solution like, you know, OpenEBS, Portworx, on that, all of that, you want to get the configuration as early as possible into the cycle, which means that possibly you want to use a solution that is declarative as well. So always, as long as the configuration is declarative, you can bring it and shift it left because again, it's YAML, it's declarative, right? Um, and of course it comes with a few benefits. So doing this, as I said, it saves you time because now you can uh, fix bugs a lot earlier in the process. It gives you agility. Uh, you can things. Uh, you can change things. Um, uh, things change things a lot faster. Uh, it's you also produce higher quality software because you have less bugs. So less bugs mean you know more quality for your software. Uh, it helps you build anything as a service because now you know from the beginning, from the developer to the end into you know, the deployment into the, the production, everything is deployed on demand. So it helps you achieve anything as a service like database as a service or machine learning as a service or pretty much anything you can think of. Again, can be think outside of the Kubernetes cluster as well. Um, and now because everything is represented as text, as YAML, it's a lot easier to put everything into your um, you know, your, your source control, version source control like Git, because you can run some tools to detect, you know, any, uh, any compliance issues and uh, achieve and, um, you know, enforce things like policy as code, right? We're using uh, OPA gatekeeper or these kind of tools as well. Um, and the last part is about GitOps. So we've seen shift left is basically about automating things as early as possible and giving people the ability to, uh, uh, to customize those definition. Um, and GitOps is how do you deploy into Kubernetes? It's basically how do you run your CI CD pipeline? Because remember I said no kubectl into production. So what that means is if you look at the picture here, a typical GitOps pipeline um, starts in the same way as a normal you know, CI CD pipeline. So on the top, you will see the developer commits the application code, uh, then it's going to trigger, the CI is going to trigger the um, you know, image build into a particular registry like you know, Docker Hub or whatever. And then this is where the GitOps pipeline is going to start. The GitOps pipeline will essentially monitor a, um, a repository where you have all the, the application um, and infrastructure manifest. And the idea of the, the, the GitOps pipeline is every time uh, you will have you know, a build that is going to update the image. So from the application code, you have a new image. The image is updated within the uh, application manifest. Then the GitOps um, solution, or typically it's also an operator itself, right? So it's going to watch, the operator is going to watch for the CRD that is mapping to your um, Git repository. And every time you, you, you have a new version or new, new, new changes that are defined or that come into that repository, you will have your GitOps pipeline that are gonna push those differences into the Kubernetes cluster. And that 
that is going to basically reconcile what you have in the Kubernetes cluster with what the definition of your application is in Git. But remember at the beginning I've said, look, with Terraform, you cannot do the opposite way. With GitOps principles, you can also do it the opposite way. So by using a, you know, um, your, what is effectively running inside Kubernetes and choose to sync in the other direction, right? So this is why it's so powerful. Um, and of course you have benefits because now you don't use kubectl to deploy things. No one has access to the cluster. It's just a process as part uh, that is happening as part of the CICD pipeline, right? And that's awesome because from a security perspective, this is obviously, uh, you know, ideal. Okay, so I'm gonna go just um, to the demo. We have what, about 20 minutes? That, that should be enough. Um, so just the way I'm introducing, what I'm gonna show you is, I mean, the, the, the GitOps pipeline I've shown you before is super simple, but in reality, you know, CICD pipelines are more convoluted. And uh, there's a name for this in English. This machine is called the gold, can't remember the name of that. Maybe Bart, you can help me. It's called the Gold, Goldberg machine, no, Gold something machine, right? I don't know, but I'm going to look that up. I'm curious. It reminds me of the game Mousetrap, but, uh, but I'll look that up. It does have a name, a special name, these things where, you know, like you do something and then, you know, it's all this fancy stuff is happening in, in sequence. I can't remember that. Anyway, so this is the demo I'm going to try to show you today. Hopefully it's going to be working. And in the end, it's going to show you this amazing Marvel application you can all have from GitHub, right? So, and this is to show you how to provision everything on demand. So it starts again with a developer. So as a developer, I want to test my application as early as possible using my local Kubernetes cluster on my laptop. And this is also something very specific to Kubernetes. You can have it run locally on your laptop. I mean, I know that there are projects to make AWS run, I mean, the AWS API run on your laptop. I know that exists. I never tested it. Maybe if people have feedback on that, but at least with Kubernetes, it's not a different Kubernetes. It's the same Kubernetes, right? So you can leverage all the Kubernetes primitives and platform to test your code and just develop within your own development cluster locally on your, on your, on your laptop, right? And you will have a, a good idea of how it behaves in, uh, you know, once it's deployed in production or in staging, provided that you have the right tool sets. Again, you want to bring as many components as possible uh, compared to what you use in other, you know, more generic environments. So typically what I want to show you is this pipeline. So I'm, let's say I'm the dev, I'm developing my uh, amazing Marvel application, which is working on top of MongoDB. Uh, which is a stateful application, of course, so which is leveraging PVC, PV, etc. I'm committing my code. And as I commit my code, I'm going to be using a post hook. So before pushing my code into uh, you know, the, the, the remote repo, I want to test my code locally. So as I commit my code, I want my um, I want to trigger the new, I mean the build of my new image, right? Uh, once the new image has been built, I want to uh, update my manifest with that, that new image um, uh, value. And also I want to uh, create my old custom values for the manifests I'm gonna be using in my cluster. So maybe I don't need like five replicas. I may be needing only one replica in my database, or I, need, I may need only two pods for my front end, not 10, you know, all those kind of things. Uh, but again, we want on demand. So we want minimum effort. So just changing things and everything should work using a very simple script, right? Of course, here, shameless plug, you know, it's on that because I'm choosing, of course, to, um, to deploy, you know, the replication, the high availability encryption with on that, but you can do it with whatever, as long as it's, um, um, as, it as it's declarative, right? That's fine. And then because we're not in production, uh, I'm going to be use, using kubectl to um, to deploy into production. But again, I'm using the the you know the um, the git post hook, right? The uh, post hook. I mean, I'm going to commit the code and use the post commit hook, which means that it's itself an automation uh, action, right? And then what's going to happen when I'm pushing the code? So I've committed the code. Um, I've doing I've done my test, and now I want to deploy. Um, my application for maybe the, the QA team to test, to further test what I've done, 
I want to push it into the central repo so that the GitOps pipeline can take my updates and deploy into the staging or production environment, right? And this is where the CI starts. So uh, git push. Uh, so this part in the demo, um, I'm going to do it manually because Tekton, as I said, is quite difficult. So I didn't implement the event management yet. So instead of using a webhook, I'm just going to trigger uh, the kubectl the create uh, Tekton pipeline manually. But it's just a single command, right? But it's just that events in, in Tekton can be quite tricky. Anyway, so uh, the Tekton, it's a Kube native CI tools for every step that are going to build is gonna be using a distinct container, a distinct container image. And this is amazing. I love Tekton. Uh, Tekton itself uh, use uh, PVC, so persistent volume claim to NPV. So essentially like stateful data to communicate between different tasks. So for example, in this pipeline at some point, I am building manifests with customize, and those manifest needs to be injected into my uh, manifest repository. So I need two volumes to do that, right? So you have to be careful because typically in Tekton, you can only enable a single volume. Uh, here I'm using on that, so I can do multiple volumes. I'm not sure if other solutions allow you to do that. But anyway, just bear in mind that a single volume per, per pipeline, if you're not using this. Um, so the, the process is uh, building image with Canico, not Docker. Why? Because you don't want to mount the Docker socket in Kubernetes. Uh, why? Because it's unsecure, um, as it gives you pretty much a root access to the node. Uh, so don't do that. It's a very, very bad idea. Canico from Google. I don't know if there are people here. Um, how, and that's another question, how do you guys build uh, your, um, your container, your image, within Kubernetes. Are you using Canico? Are you using something else? I'm quite curious about this too. Um, so eventually the Canico image is, I mean, which is a Docker OCI compliant image, is gonna land into Docker Hub. And then the same process will start again. We're gonna be using customize to, um, to customize you know, that, that proper manifest with um, you know, the environment we want. So we're not gonna be applying the dev overlay. We're gonna be applying the production or staging overlay and deploy that manifests into the repository that is monitored by Flux. So Flux, a tool by Weave, um, is GitHub solution. You have GitHub, other GitHub solutions. So two popular ones are uh, Flux and the other one is uh, Argo. So you can use one or the other. That particular case, I've used, I've used Flux. And then this is the, <coughs> excuse me, continuous uh, delivery, right? Because we're gonna continuously watching for what's happening in the application manifest repo. And anytime there is a modification, uh, the modification will be applied into the production cluster, which of course is not using my laptop. This time is gonna be my, uh, using my production GKE cluster. Okay, that's about it. So let's get into it. <laughs> so 10 minutes to do it, that's one, oh, 12, okay. Should be enough. So let me share my, oh, is there any question on that? Because I went a bit fast. Hopefully people are already somehow familiar with the component of, uh, I've mentioned today. Uh, yeah, no, not, I think, don't hesitate I think was, to ask question. We can- No, no, I think it was, I think it was well mapped out. I think it was well mapped out. So yeah, go for it. Okay, so uh, the first thing we're gonna do, um, I'm gonna start with my um, development environment. So I need to use this one here. So this is my amazing um, Marvel application <laughs> that is there, all my IP sitting there. Right. So what I want to do is um, I'm going to try to build, um, you know, create a new modification and then build that container and deploy my new application into my local environment. But before that, I want to show you the, the customize, um, the application manifest, because this is the key for the on-demand aspect. So for people who are not familiar with, with uh, Customize, so Customize is now part of the kubectl. So if you do kubectl-k, uh, it's gonna be probably, I mean, using an old version of Customize. This is why personally I prefer to use the Customize command line, uh, but yeah, it's available by default in kubectl. So the idea is you have a base configuration that is defining you know, your application. So in my particular uh, case, I'm using a deployment for my Marvel app. I've got front end. So this is a front end essentially. And 
you can see here I'm connecting, even though I'm deploying a three node MongoDB, I'm only connecting to the first one uh, because I'm lazy, right? It's the first version of this whole de demo. So it's not perfect. <laughs> Don't blame me for that, right? But typically I should connect to every, every node properly in the MongoDB cluster. Uh, let's do it this way for the moment, right? So I'm passing certain variables there that I'm gonna get from, uh, you know, from the deployment. Uh, that's pretty easy, right? In terms of Mongo, same thing. I'm defining the service, headless service, because it's a stateful set. So you need to define a headless service on top of that. And uh, the number of replica here can be any number because I'm going to modify it with the overlay anyway uh, later on, right? So doesn't that doesn't really matter? Um, then a couple of you know images, version, uh, command line. Uh, yeah, I'm not using an operator for this demo because otherwise it would have been too convoluted. But I want to show you what is what you can modify. If if that's a, an operator, it's the same thing. Instead of having Mongo dash st stateful set, just bring your operator as the base and create your overlay and modify what you need to modify uh, in terms of the section inside the, the the YAML configuration of the operator. Same principle. Uh, and again, here secret sauce. You want to have a volume claim template and just specifying uh, the storage class. Well, again, here, the storage class and the size, I don't care because I'm going to modify it in my customized overlay. Right? And basically, in my customized overlay, I'm going to say, OK, this is what I want to merge. So this is the local file that I've got underneath customization.yaml. So I'm going to say, I want to merge the modification that I'm going to specify just underneath. right? And also, I want to change the name of the image. So what I want to do is, in my dev, I want only two replica of my um, my my front end. I want to use, I want to change the storage class. I want to use, in that case, again, shameless plug, <laughs> and on that uh, storage class. And I want to, uh, you know, configure like the number of replica from the on that, you know, back backend. Um, backend storage, I want to have one replica of that because I'm running in dev. In production, I may want more. Right? That's basically it. So what it's going to do when I'm uh, applying the, the customized command is going to change all my base configuration to reflect what I've got here. So essentially, as a DevOps engineer, you, you give this to your developer, and the developer will probably do, OK, I need, I need just to change this, right? So this is one part of the on-demand. I just have to complete this little files and then the uh, implementation of that will be done by the CI pipeline. But this part is really key because it gives you like a bullet plate that you can modify on demand. Production difference, I will need to run five replicas uh, and I want to delete the storage class because I want to use the storage class that is already provisioned in my uh, you know, production environment. And that is named, in my case, on that another type of storage class, whatever, right? Um, and as a result of that, I'm going to generate a manifest, which is empty at the moment, because um, if I run in production, um, my CI pipeline, remember, is going to generate the manifest there. And, and um, the GitOps pipeline is going to monitor what is in this file. So currently, it's empty. Once I run the pipeline, it will fill um, this file with all the manifests that define my application and apply this into Kubernetes. I hope that makes sense. But for the moment, I'm going to run the develop development um, you know, pipeline, which is essentially uh, here. Post commit. This is my pipeline. Super easy. I'm building um, a cross uh, platform uh, image because I'm running uh, on M1 on my Mac. So you have to do this. Um, then I'm using customize build to create my manifest, specifying I want my dev overlay. And then I'm just going to apply this manifest using kubectl, right? So let's, instead of GitOps, so let's simulate this. So I'm going to just touch tests, right? Okay, I've got a test. I want to commit this. So git add test. Okay, git commits add test. So, and before I, I press enter, I want to show you. So this is my, on, on, on the top, this is my local cluster. And I've got, uh, I don't have anything there. So I'm gonna monitor what's happening there. So I should see things popping up there. 
committing this. Okay, so I'm building the new image with the new code, pushing the image into Docker. And once I've got the manifest, yeah, kubectl is gonna populate the cluster with all those definitions. So the way, I mean, I've got all those manifests. I'm, I'm, I have a batch because the way um, the Marvel application work is that I'm not querying the API, the Marvel APIs directly. What I'm doing is I'm using the job to query the API once. And then I'm with that job, I'm populating my database, my MongoDB uh, with the data I've gathered probably, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of um, you know, data and entries you can uh, get from Marvel. I think I choose like six or seven hundreds. Um, and then I'm caching this into the database and the application, uh, the Flask application I'm using um, is just displaying that information with a nice, you know, bootstrap sort of uh, template, right? To make it, you know, uh, nice actually. So this is why I have a job. Okay, so you can see that MongoDB has been provisioned typically by a, an operator. And here I've also added the data with my job into MongoDB. So if I do a get pod now, you can see everything is running. Uh, I've got my service that should be running as well. I've got my model front end. So let's check that the application is working. Like, did you sacrifice a good before? Uh, okay, this is running on 8080. Uh, let's go to this localhost. Let's pray. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we made it. So now we can spend the next hour <laughs> just looking at what is there um, and change all the card. So this is my, uh, let's say, this is my dev application. I'm happy with what I have and I want to push it into production now. So typically, what I would do is I would do a git push, right? And automatically it should trigger my pipeline. But as I said, I'm just gonna do it manually, but don't tell anyone. Uh, so I'm gonna go into my Tekton pipeline. So Tekton, uh, yeah, you have to spend a lot of time to, um, I mean, it, take, it, it took me like almost two days to, to make this simple, I mean, simple, not so simple pipeline, but yeah, it's super flexible. I like it, but you have to spend some time. There's a, the learning curve is quite, yeah, it's quite steep. So yeah. But what we're going to do is run the production pipeline where I'm specifying now the customized, uh, you know, customization using the production environment. So now it's going to deploy into the uh, repo and then Flux, Flux is going to monitor in production. So if I, if I do like a, uh, pod there, I have no pod in production. Uh, I should see also that uh, with flux, oh, what is the tree? I don't have anything deployed yet. So once uh, GitOps and, and flux will, um, will, uh, will take and um, so grasp all the, you know, get all the, the information is gonna deploy it. And the, the new, you will have a new, uh, a new tree that is going to be appearing there. So just for the sake of it, we're going to trace the MongoDB as well. So the last is not there. I think yeah, it's not there. There's nothing. There's no object in deploying the cluster, which is what we want. So let's trigger that pipeline. So for this, I'm going to be using, as I said, uh, command line, but it's, it's quite easy, right? It's just, again, declarative. I'm gonna apply my pipeline run. And by doing so, I'm gonna create a CRD, which itself, you have an, I mean, you have a controller, a custom controller that is gonna monitor that and trigger all the action. And those action, you can do that pipeline, pipeline run logs to see what's happening. So again, I'm using Kaniko this time to build the image um, and then inject all my on-demand you know, infrastructure resources configuration into the different manifest with, um, with, with customize. And then I'm gonna, I push this into the repository that Flux is monitoring. And then if all goes well, um, the GitOps pipeline is gonna deploy this into the cluster. So uh, we can check, yeah, not there yet. 
So you're going to see the same thing. Not ready yet. Completed. So now, yeah, the manifests. So you can see every step of the pipeline is a container. So this is the image build. This is the uh, customized um, you know, section. And at the end, um, is going to end up with just pushing um, those manifests into the Git repository. And that's basically it. Right? So you, it's really like deploying container on demand as um, you, know, you go through your pipeline. It's really Kubernetes. That nothing from what I'm showing today, nothing is running outside of Kubernetes, which is why I mean I found it really amazing to get all this automation inside Kubernetes. It's it's really super powerful. Okay, so now customize as build pushing, um, so all the gits um, now um, you know um, workflows. So now I should see the okay. Manifest, please GitOps, <laughs> don't do that to me now. So now I'm waiting for Flux to pick up. Okay, it's there, right? So now if I trace the object, yeah, you can see the last time it's been reconciled, it's basically now. So let's check again that I have my pod running. So you can see again, now I have got my stateful workloads deployed, but this time, with my production parameter. And again, it's on demand because I didn't touch anything, right? All the CI has done that for me with the right tool set. So just wait for, for it to be um, finished and just test that the application now is working in production. And then we can call it a day. I think we're a bit over time, but hopefully it's not too bad for people to uh, stay one or two minutes more. Nah, it's totally worth it, it's worth the wait. So any other questions? Or I like one, th one thing that you mentioned and something that's come up quite frequently in different live streams is the idea and one of the benefits or why we are making the case for data on Kubernetes is being able to run absolutely everything in a Kubernetes native way and not doing anything else outside. Um, you've been showing a very good example of that. Is this something that you expect to be happening more and more in the near future, or do you think we still got to wait a while? Yeah, and I, actually, I will be the best advocate of that yeah. I can, because this is what I want to see. Uh, again, this is back to the first discussion at the beginning when I said, you know, it's just a matter of cost optimization and running. You don't have to run everything into Kubernetes, but... It's, it's such a beautiful and well-engineered platform, an extensible platform. Uh, I call it cloud in a box or data center in a box. You have everything available through um, software plugin. I mean, it's yeah. amazing. Anyone can plug its own IP, its own feature and leverage that to do anything. So yeah, of course. And you know, as much as I like to consume things in public clouds, you get more control when you get into Kubernetes. So for an like enterprise customer who wants to you know, implement compliance and get more control, for example, you know, like ma managing your keys. If you build, if you encrypt, encrypt things into AWS and you're using AWS KMS to manage your keys, it basically means that AWS has the keys to decrypt what you have encrypted. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. So, you know, there's a lot of different arguments of why you want to do it inside Kubernetes. Yeah. And um, yeah, I will be definitely an advocate for that. And yeah, I'm really hoping that people are continue to, to do that. And as a community, again, remember this conversation we had on, on the Twitter live stream, we have to, to bring the best practices as people yep. move towards that kind of direction. Right? Yeah. And because that also touches on another point that you mentioned about cost, is that there will maybe cost in, uh, reduction in infrastructure and tooling if you're adding cost in people, that's also, once again, get those best practices out there so it doesn't take, it's not, it's, it's a people question, but it's a timing question. If it takes someone six months or a year to get up to speed on this, yeah, then that's very expensive. If, if there are communities of practice, such as this one, um, that make available those best practices so it's easier, then the troubleshooting saves you a lot of headaches. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly the point. So yeah, hopefully uh, I've managed to convince people today that just do everything in Kubernetes, everything you can. But yeah, just to check the application is working. So now I've uh, is eighty eighteen production. I'm gonna just gonna refresh that. But yeah, I have no doubt this amazing app should be working. Yeah, of course it's working. Why not? <laughs> so if you want to try it yourself, everything is on Git. Um, my handle on Git is v fifty five, all spelled out in letters. Just there, if you go on GitHub 
slash v55 here. I've got uh, my repository is there. I've got this demo app. Yeah, I'm gonna put, all, I mean, all the stuff I do is there so you can pick the image as well and play with the application or you can even enhance it if you want, you know, make fun with it. That's perfectly fine. And uh, yeah, just as a conclusion, I want to sum up what we have seen today. It's just like the last slide. So key takeaways for uh, takeaways for today, guys, hopefully um, cloud native is a mean to an end. Only use public cloud services that make sense for your use cases. Don't think necessarily, okay, I'm going to use everything in AWS because AWS is cloud. Well, no, the real framework to build cloud application, guess what? It's Kubernetes. It's our cloud native you know, community. Uh, Kubernetes operators, GitOps principle, also with you know, the shift left paradigms are really key to creating a standard framework that of course enables self-service or on-demand resources for developers, but not only developers, for other people too, of course, that include databases and other stateful components. And this is what we want to focus on too. Uh, you don't want to have only your stateless workload there. Uh, you want to take the same advantage with you know, the, your stateful application in your databases. Uh, and the last one, you know, when decoupling data and configuration from the application code, remember download API, uh, make your application native by decoupling configuration from the app, then Kubernetes can act as the automation engine, engine from pretty much any API-driven resources, including external infrastructure component. And this is where I want to bring, this is the next step. Um, what, what I, where I want to see us as a community, not, I mean, the okay community, but like the, the you know, Kubernetes user is to start using Kubernetes instead of Ansible to automate uh, your network provisioning, even on-prem. I mean, I was using. I mean, I worked for Cisco for six years, and one of my my talks were all about automating into Kubernetes as well, using things directly. Even if it's a Terraform uh, operator, actually, you have a Terraform operator that exists. Uh, it's not super famous, but you can deploy your Terraform script into Kubernetes or CRDs. And automatically, you will have a, a controller there that make that, that is going to make the Terraform script run into Terraform Cloud. I mean, that's amazing. I love this kind of stuff. Well, of course, and you have Crossplane that can also allows you to do that. So also check out um, Crossplane. Okay. Uh, I think that's it for me today. So again, thank you, Bart, for having me. I had fun. Hopefully, everyone here too. I'm certain. I'm certain. I'm certain they did. Can you stop sharing your screen though, really quickly before we finish sure. up? Because speaking to fun, this is very important. Um, as is tradition in our community, while you are talking, we have an amazing artist who's working in the background. Let me know when you can see my screen. <laughs> yeah. So nice. he was able to get a visual summary of the stuff that was going on there. Obviously, there was a lot that was covered. Um, would have to do a separate drawing to get all the wonderful Marvel characters in there, which I think is so cool. And I think this is a really good lesson to anybody out there who wants to make this more fun, enjoyable, and accessible. Try to find ways to make it fun. And, yeah. and also, then you'll be more, more motivated to work on it because you're like, no, no, I'm not like you know, running just through provisioning or things like that. I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm interacting with something that I enjoy in my free time. So why can't I mix that with my job? Um, so I think that's a really, really nice lesson to everybody out there. Um, Nick, thank you very much for your time today. We will definitely be seeing you back, having you back and hope to see you in yeah, London in, in 2000, yeah. early two, uh, 2022. Um, thanks everyone for joining. I, I left a link for, for Nick's blog. You can find the new blog. It's not yet on the Ondat website, but it is in Nick's Twitter. So if you want to check that out, you can find that. Um, and as always, uh, a pleasure to be with everybody. Nick, thank you very much.